Listening to the Taming Hinges podcast, conversations about self-awareness and mental health. We talk about anything and everything on the podcast. Real experiences, real life. Come get triggered. Welcome to another episode of the Taming Hindrances Podcast. My name's Phil, the host and creator of the podcast. And today's episode is all about unknown. All about the unknown. All those things out there that we don't know about. All those things out there that we don't ever really kind of get into unless we have to. Because, you know, maybe our thought process has changed in some way. Where somebody made some discovery, all sorts of different things. Essentially, the unknown is what drives humanity in some cases. So when I, I talk about the unknown, we have to start, as I usually do, with a definition. But the definition we're going to start with is not of the unknown. We're going to start with the definition of known. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines known as generally recognized. Generally recognized. That means it's an agreed upon principle. It's an agreed upon idea. It's an agreed upon something. And to be agreed upon, it must have been presented. It must have been presented to humanity as a whole and then be agreed upon. It used to be, you know, way back in the day, early, you know, pieces of language came together and then the early pieces of the English language came together. And the word known was used as a statement mostly. It was it was to be known, or it was known. You could be known, um, and that later got its own connotation that goes into the the sexual connotation of, you know, to know someone is to be intimate with them um, at a at a, a personal physical level. It could also have been said that someone was known um, by an individual. X knew Y. Uh, or X knows Y, and that would have maybe symbolized a union of sorts. And that's a generally recognized thing, right? So when we look at known, we have to understand that it's generally recognized. So you could say, oh, X knows Y. It's a generally recognized idea that those two people are together. That is a known thing. Or, you know, we could go into modern society. We could say, you know, Newtonian laws, known. (laughs) We know Newtonian physics. We know some things about what's considered metaphysics, but we'll get into that word meta a little later because I think there is a, a recurrence of what's known as bad representation inside of subjects that that we're trying to make into new things or to reliven them or to generally bring about a renaissance, if you will. The renaissance period in and of itself, um, fantastic age for humanity, 
is a period of time of the unknown. The Renaissance was the, the bringing forth of the unknown to then be known, and it changed the world. It changed society. It changed all sorts of different things. And we have Renaissance periods in different pieces in and of them own, own selves. We have, you know, the Renaissance of humanity, and we have the Renaissance of the arts and humanities, which is what we consider the Renaissance period. But we have the Renaissance of all sorts of other things, the Renaissance of industry, the Renaissance of technology, the Renaissance of the internet. We have all these different Renaissances that occur. We might just not refer to them as that. But again, we go back to what is the definition of known? The definition of known, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, which I, I like to keep it simple, generally recognized. It's just generally recognized. The problem with that idea, though, is that when something is not generally recognized, we would then consider it to be unknown. That doesn't connotate anything. And remember, I love taking the connotation out of things. It doesn't connotate truth or falsity. It's just generally recognized. So it's an agreed upon thing. So when we talk about mental health and self-awareness, we get into the known and the unknown, but particularly now that I've gone a little bit farther into this podcast and, you know, the last couple episodes, we talked about mind, body, other, and specifically last episode, we talked about initiations and to be initiated and all the different things we get initiated into. Initiation is a process of taking the unknown and bringing it into the known by changing some of the definitions. And, you know, I talked about how there's agendas and different representations of things. Well, this is where we get into kind of that generally recognized portion, the known, right? So when we look at known, when we consider mental health and self-awareness, we should use it as a personal thing and not so much as a generally recognized and agreed upon societally. We should use it as a generally recognized idea of, do you know yourself? Do you know your likes and dislikes? Do you know what makes you happy? What makes you sad? Do you know how to control your emotions? You know, a lot of people like to say like stoics don't have emotions. They're very stoic. That's not true. The reality of stoicism or to be stoic is to have control over one's emotions. So much so that if an emotional reaction were to occur, it's first represented as a logic process. It, it's There's logic and reason that's associated to it. And there's a thought process that goes along with the emotional response. And that happens in the electrical storm of the mind. So when we talk about mental health and self-awareness, when it comes to known and unknown, I like to use this as a piece where you can challenge what you think you know and maybe learn something about what you do know at the same time. Because when we learn new things, we're going from something being unknown to known. And that could be as simple as vocabulary or even just listening to a new song. Technically, that was unknown to you, and now it's known. So the microcosm of known and unknown inside of your own personal mental space is vast. And the macrocosm of what's unknown is even vaster. It's kind of known, remember, generally recognized, that we don't know everything. We're constantly making new discoveries, but we don't represent it that way. We represent new discoveries as these 
I don't know, magical moments, if you will, or, or pervasive periods of time in which, you know, maybe multiple discoveries happen in a certain field, i.e. a renaissance, maybe, if you want to call it that. But to be known is generally recognized. So like math, science, all of these things are, are currently generally known or generally recognized or i.e. known. But inside of each of those things is a piece of unknown. And this is where I love to take the macrocosm and the microcosm and kind of just mash them together and just see what happens when you do that. So if we take the known and unknown of the world in which we live in, science, math, language, um, social interaction, society, humanity, all the different things we've talked about in this podcast and all the different things you do in your daily life, all of that. And then look at all of it together. The planets, every, just everything you could possibly think of. That's the whole macrocosm of the known and unknown. And there's much more probably unknown than there is known. That's fair, I would say. And we then we look at the microcosm. My likes, dislikes, your likes, dis, you know, that, that kind of thing. You know, uh, what's your favorite movie, favorite color, the superficial, the deeper stuff, you know, all of that that's considered the microcosm. And they'll smash them together. What's the weight to known to unknown? It's probably still more toward the unknown. Oddly enough, there is a theoretical process to say we'll never know everything. And that's not just because our lifespans are a certain amount of time or, you know, humanity might die off or those types of things. It's that there is an infinite possibility of discovery but there is a finite possibility of understanding. And this is the conversation I had, essentially, if we're just making it very short, about the differentiation of body, mind, and other. And specifically that section of other we talked about in episode 24. Again, I'll, I'll say it one more time. There is an infinite amount of discovery. Well, the balanced infinite is finite. And finite is the amount of understanding we could possibly have. It is theoretically possible that humans only have so many capabilities. And that would logically track if we look at animals and even just monkeys. You know, we say, according to our known, our generally recognized understanding of where we came from, as far as evolution is concerned, we come from primates. They have a finite understanding of the world in which they live in. They don't build things like we do. They don't, you know, make gigantic um, civilization pieces like we do. They don't build cities and these types of things. But they do have a finite understanding of it. They build little societies and communities. And, you know, they have hunters and, well, not most of them don't really hunt gatherers. They have gatherers and, you know, they've, you know, the mom and they, they, they have all these different societal pieces that we kind of have at a finite level. So it means they've kind of achieved their known ability. That being said, there's always a infinite possibility. So it's, possible we just haven't watched them long enough and there's that old adage that if you put enough monkeys in a room with typewriters one of them will produce Shakespeare if you have an infinite number of monkeys 
one of them will produce Shakespeare. It's just an old saying. So if we have an infinite amount of possibility and we have a finite amount of understanding, we're looking at mortality is what we're looking at. We're looking at the idea of being mortal, of not having this infinite possibility due to a restriction of some sort. We're looking at evolution. We're looking at all of these things that we define ourselves as is kind of where we're stuck. And because of that, I find anecdotally that we limit ourselves even further and we don't often question. And I think that's a dangerous place to be when it comes to mental health and self-awareness. When we stop questioning, we're only left with the knowledge we have. And remember, I've said many times, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing the answer to a question. Wisdom is knowing where to find it. Well, there's another piece to that I've never added in, and I'm going to add it in today, is we have knowledge and we have wisdom and we have adventure. And I know it doesn't really all kind of, you know, it doesn't sound very poetic. It's not, you know, knowledge and wisdom. Yeah. And then adventure. Well, adventure is that curiosity, if you will. So maybe you want to say it that way, knowledge, wisdom, and curiosity. I think that maybe sounds a little better. We have knowledge and wisdom and knowledge is knowing the answer to a question. One plus one, two plus two, you know, what are, what's, pick a, pick a question. It doesn't matter. But that idea only works in the known because it's generally recognized. So we can say, yeah, you are true or you are false. It's, it's a binary option. Knowledge is a binary situation. Yeah, we have subjectivity and objectivity and we can argue that all day long. But when it comes to knowledge itself, it's binary. You either know or you don't know. That's it's either known or unknown. And known is just, a, again, a generally recognized idea. So we have knowledge and then we have wisdom. And wisdom is knowing where to find that answer. If you don't know the answer to a question, if it's unknown to you, you can know where to look for it. And that's a, that's a deeper step to understanding. It's a deeper step to, to life, essentially. Um, it's a much deeper step to our mental health faculties. If I, if I don't understand why I'm feeling a certain way or, or what's causing me to be lethargic or to be down, maybe however you want to define it, then it's best if I don't know that answer to then have at least have wisdom. So maybe I can go look, am I just, have I been working too much? What are the questions I can start to ask to maybe get to the knowledge that I'm seeking. And that's true for any question ever. Um, that's why we have things called ways of thinking, which I'll get into in a little bit here. Um, but I'm adding in today this piece known as curiosity or adventure. And curiosity is, well, curious. Curiosity is a motivating factor in some cases. And so much so that we've had multiple different connotations of the drive known as curiosity. We've even created that whole statement, you know, curiosity killed the cat. Well, curiosity maybe has killed many things and many people, 
animals alike. But curiosity is also something that we share across almost all species and organisms. Curiosity is a, a, a drive of motivation to find out the unknown. And without curiosity, we would never evolve. In fact, we would probably have died out. You know, if, if we go along with, um, I guess what would be considered the current new theory of the evolution of the human mind, as far as um, its change from our previous ancestors till now, as far as the genetical coding and going and brain size, you know, we have monkeys, we're hanging out in the trees and that's our way of survival is, you know, you have the hominid, which eventually becomes upright, but you have, before that you have, you know, these monkeys hanging out in trees and then they stop doing that and they start walking on the ground because they're able to throw things to protect themselves instead of climbing the trees to protect themselves. And then you have these hominids who walk across the earth. And when they're doing that, they're finding these mushrooms that are psilocybin by nature or something along those lines. And we get neurogenesis due to these intakes of different things. Not only just psilocybin mushrooms possibility, but also just the fact that we're eating different things because we have a curiosity to do so. And by eating different things, we're taking in different nutritional values and we're able to create different health structures due to our new nutritional values. I'm not the one to explain it all. It's a very interesting theory. But that theory goes along with the logical understanding of curiosity being a driving, motivating factor to do something. Simply to want to know. I just want to know. But maybe I don't have the wisdom, so what do I do? I don't have the answer, so I don't know. And no one else knows, so we don't have a generally recognized answer. So I don't know, you don't know. What do we do? Well, luckily, mentally, somewhere along the lines, we created a process to go about even not knowing where to find the answer, so not having wisdom, but to seek it out. And that process is curiosity. And thus you can say curiosity killed the cat because, I mean, there's all sorts of ways to foul this process up. You know, at some point in time in our evolution, if that's, you know, the common known idea we want to recognize as, as we are evolved in some way or another, I I say we could probably argue that if we wanted to. We could we could find other theories that might be possible. But a good agreed upon one right now is the theory of evolution. And at some point in evolution, you know, there was this person named Darwin, and Darwin came up with Darwinism. And that's a fascinating subject just to peruse through if you want. And you get the Darwinism awards that yeah, it takes a lot of stupid people to make an intelligent person because somebody had to get it wrong, right? That's kind of what Darwinism says. Is we had to to, increase, to create intelligence, curiosity had to have killed some people because without that having happened, we wouldn't know, oh, that's poisonous or that's dangerous or, you know, we, yes, have instinctual nature, but how far does that go? Curiosity can get in the way of that sometimes, if you know, but curiosity also at the same point leads to 
amazing revolutions, i.e. renaissances and things. So at some point in time, somewhere along the lines, somebody had to go, is that fall going to kill me? How far really is that, you know, cliff drop? And yes, curiosity can kill the cat because, well, it was clearly too far and that person died. Okay, well, I know this is a kind of a poor representation, but even with mushrooms and eating mushrooms, somebody ate the wrong mushroom because they were curious, like, well, what's this mushroom taste like? Or just that in a sense of senses. So senses in and of themselves are another piece of that curiosity because we get sensation and sensation gets linked up with the vagus nervous system and just the, all of the different parts of the body to, you know, do that whole neurogenesis thing of creating new synaptic firings from the process of doing different things. If you get hit, ah, okay. I make the connection of, no, I don't want that to happen. So now the curiosity may become, how do I not get hit? That could lead or have led to the discovery of all martial warfare systems. Don't get killed. Right there. How do I not get hit, not get killed? I defend myself. Oh, how do I do defense? And then once you create one thing, as I've talked about many times before, you have to create balance with it. So once there's a discovery of one side of something, we at the same time discover the other side of it. We just don't always explore it because it kind of becomes known that that's the balance of structure and maybe it's not something to explore or maybe it just comes together. But duality is the idea that there's two sides to the same coin. So once I discover the coin itself, I have both discovered heads and tails at the same time. That's, you know, I might have called it that, but I discovered, as soon as you discover a coin, you discover the two sides. They have to balance each other. They are the balance to each other, and thus they are the measurement to each other. So known and unknown should really be a balance to each other. And this goes back to the, the idea of infinite possibility, finite understanding. That finite understanding is not necessarily the full balance. It's the measurement. For something to be infinite, there must be a finite measurement that makes it infinite. To be infinite is to just simply be a reoccurring one more than the previous, but forever. So if I have one, oh, I have two. Well, because I have two and then I, infinite tells me I have three and four and five and six and it just goes on and on and on forever. Just add one more and that's infinite. Add one more, but never stop. That's, that's infinite. To be finite is to add one more and to stop. That's finite in a nutshell. So if I have known, if I have generally recognized, I have the not generally recognized. I have all of the things we've maybe never explored or all of the things that maybe we just didn't explore enough. To this day, we are learning about the human body. We're learning about cellular structures, not just the human body. We're learning about cells in and of themselves. And the human body is made up of cells and organisms and all these other things. But even inside the cell, we have things called organelles and organelles are like the organs of the cell. So, we're constantly updating our information. We're constantly updating what's known. 
So if we're constantly updating what's known, then the growth of the unknown is exponential. It's infinite. Because every time we learn something new and we know something new, we also thus create a possibility of an unknown. And in mental health and self-awareness, this becomes the, the magnum opus of curiosity. The more you understand about yourself, the more there is to understand. It's a never-ending process. And it has a risk-reward structure to it. Just like anything that involves curiosity, there's risk and reward. Often the rewards outweigh the risk because oddly enough, universe likes to balance things and it likes to balance things using asymmetry. I've said that multiple times before and I'll continue to say it because repetition is the mother of all skill. But when we look at mental health and self-awareness, we look at the idea of a a structure. We put it in a box almost. We put that box is your skull. It's your, you know, where the brain sits. So a, a, not a box, but a ball. We put it in a ball, this thing known as a skull. It's kind of round and just sits there, but we encase it. We, we, we don't, we don't magnify it. We just encase it and we leave it there and we call it mental health and we call it self-awareness. And we do ourselves a disservice by looking at it that way. It's the only way I've come to know this is through my practice of massage therapy. And even in that, I had to look outside of massage therapy to get a better understanding of what I'm talking about here, or at least where this idea came from. When I look at the human body, I don't look at a 2D structure. I don't think in the terms of the anatomy and physiology book that I was given with 2D representations of 3D structures, I think 3D because I can palpate it. That's the greatest skill in massage therapy is palpation, um, touching things and, and not just touching things, but to palpate is to touch and to, to know, to, you know, have a generally recognized idea of, ah, I am touching this. You can palpate anything. You can palpate your mouse and keyboard. You can palpate a pencil, palpate the steering wheel. And one of the ways to palpate something super effectively to know if you know is to do it with only one sense because palpation is the sense of touch and it's to understand something through touch. So if you close your eyes and you palpate something and know exactly what that thing is, that is a high skill of palpation. You're not just guessing. You go, oh, that's my mug. I know that's my mug. <laughs> Even with my eyes closed, I'm like, oh, okay, it's cup handle. Oh, it's got some liquid in it, mug. So that practice, if you will, is essentially a second step higher than just touching something. It's palpation. And I think I've talked about concepts, techniques, concepts, and principles before. I'm not really going to go too far into that as as far as that discussion, but it's important to understand there's techniques, which is just a way of doing something, a concept, which is a, a way of making that technique or a group of techniques better. And then there's principles and principles make all concepts and all techniques better. And it works up and, and down the same steps. So if I were to look at mental health and self-awareness at a more principle level, 
I have to look outside of just this 2D idea of I have a, 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 a brain, a mental health structure inside a skull, and that's where I'm living. And that's what I try to do when I talk about the, the body, mind, and other, the three health bodies. You know, the physical form, the mental form, which is the translation between the upper and the lower, and then the other, all the things that are unknown to us. In mental health and self-awareness, that comes down to not looking at yourself simply as yourself. And this is where we get into the conversation of the more you know, the less you know when it comes to learning about yourself. And the curiosity there is the driving factor. It's the motivating factor. And that, again, comes from the universe's weird way of balancing things due to asymmetry. Life would be very dull and very unwarranted if there was no curiosity or discovery. And this comes down to, a you can bring it down to a, a minute factor of second to second to second to second, a bigger factor of minute to minute to minute, hour to hour to hour. These are all agreed upon structures of time management or understandings of time. They are known time. We have a way of measuring seconds, a way of measuring minutes, a way of measuring hours, a way of measuring days, which is just, you know, a rotation of the earth around its axis so that the sun goes from one point on the 360 degree rotation point all the way around to the next one. And we say that takes around 24 hours, but those are known, recognized, agreed upon measurement structures. In the bigger, grander, universal idea of it all, there's repetition. The earth rotates, the sun moves through the universe. Thus we move through different points in reference. Or you could say simply that there's movement, a principal opportunity, because it's opportune, it, it's, it's, a, it's continually attempting to do so, of the universe's movement. And this is where we get the idea that everything is, we live in an electric universe. It's the, the potential for movement or, or potentiality. Essentially, everything is moving constantly, never stopping, but it has a potential to move together or in an organized fashion. Maybe I'll get into that at the end here. But for now, stepping back. That idea of curiosity is one that I believe can save lives because the more you know, the less you know, and the more you get to find out. And it's one of the last bastions of, well, of humanity that's, that still exists in. I think it's really tough for someone in today's modern society to find a niche in which they can express their curiosity fully in a way that it brings them a reason for being because without reason for being we find institutional understanding of mental disorders without curiosity we're left with the mundane or the not worth it <laughs> we get stuck in a world where there was nothing more. And it's very easy to find that world not worth it. 
So without curiosity, I suppose we could argue that we don't have consciousness because consciousness living in that electric universe is a, the potentiality of continuing to move in a direction that is not stagnant. That's one way to look at it. So moving back, stepping back slightly, the process of self-awareness is never ending for good reason. The more we try to understand about ourselves, the more there is to understand. And if that wasn't the case, we wouldn't do it because in this modern day society, there's not much more to discover easily or that we can do with reward. And that comes down to a chemical process of just getting dopamine. You know, our, our bodies like dopamine. Dopamine's the reward chemical. And they like serotonin, you know, these types of things. They kind of go hand in hand. But dopamine's that reward chemical. Eating cheese might give you dopamine, you know. All sorts of things provide, you know, maybe coffee, caffeine, because that gets the adrenal going, and then there's a dopamine rush. It's the reward chemical. Anything you do that you enjoy gives you dopamine, so you're constantly looking for more things to enjoy. Now, at first, the monkey brain... That was just food. We just, I need calories to move. ATP production requires cal caloric intake and caloric intake is what allows me to keep living. So I need to find more food. So you would get dopamine from finding food. So then, you know, hominin us walking across the ground, we find a mushroom. We're like, Ooh, food. Yum, 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 yum. Awesome. Dopamine. And then maybe with that came, you know, this whole psilocybin thing that created neurogenesis. And neurogenesis would create dopamine because we're essentially making our brains bigger. Um, but I digress on that fact. Maybe another time. That dopamine re reward system is the idea of adventure. To go on a grand adventure or to live life. And we don't have a lot of ways to do that anymore beyond entertainment because there's not a lot of easy discoveries left. It used to be a child could walk out in the backyard and discover an entire adventure worth of dopamine reactions. There was new plants and animals, and bugs and sounds and smells and sights, all these different sense apparatus that could be flourished with amazing processes. And dopamine would come with that. So much so that the child would want to get out of bed every day to go out into the, 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 the woods to find new things, new ideas, new adventures. Then we invented the internet. And a lot of that went away because you can just go on the internet and do that. And you can learn about all these new things and new processes. But what the internet brought about was the death of individual adventure. Instead, it brought together a collective adventure. And that collective adventure showed us the monstrosity we now live with. The monstrosity we now live with, which I believe is one of the most dangerous things to someone's mental health, is someone else already did it, and they did it better than I did. And they had an experience. And I can watch their experience and know that they, that it's known, it's generally recognized this person did it the best. 
So instead of the little fish in the little pond, everyone is now a little fish in a fucking ocean. There's no big fish in the little pond anymore. There's just little fish in the ocean. And every once in a while, there's a shark. And the shark ruins it for everybody. Because the shark showed off. And the shark let everybody know, I did it the best. And that's not necessarily wrong, because the ecosystem requires all of these things. But when it comes to mental health, it's a monstrosity. It is nearly impossible to get away from the fact that it's very easy to watch someone else do something and find a dopamine reaction from it because we can recognize what's happening instead of doing it ourselves. And thus we are not learning about ourselves. We are simply learning about something else in a group format in which there's a known, a general recognized best and we don't question it there's not a lot of people out there nowadays trying to be better than someone else because they enjoy that this is known as competition and instead we've created this tiered idea of there's professionals at the competition And that's the only thing that's worth it. Why do it if I'm not doing it at a pro level? I'll just watch them do it. And then, I mean, you do have a subset of the population that still, you know, practices amateur this or amateur that, but we call it amateur. Like it's lesser in some way. But it's not. Because the practice is self-awareness. I used to play some amateur volleyball. I wasn't that good. I played a Libro. I'm kind of short. So, you know, I didn't really have a high vertical. I have long arms, so that helped. I could, you know, I could hit a spike if I had to. It probably was going to get blocked. But I, you know, if I had to hit one, I could hit one. But, you know, there was other ways for me to enjoy that because I just enjoyed, I didn't do it to be the best at it. I just enjoyed playing volleyball. So I did. But I knew a lot of people who got discouraged the fact that I played volleyball with someone who was like six, seven and could hit anything. As long as you put the ball in the air, he was going to put it down the line and no one was going to stop him. Cause that's what he did. He had a, he played volleyball, you know, as a like sport like he was well-trained, but his physical presence on the court was so imposing that other people would be like, oh, they would just get discouraged at the idea that they had to play this individual instead of enjoying learning about themselves playing volleyball. And that is the massive differentiation I find in the martial community compared to the martial arts community and also in the martial arts community itself. When you get someone who practices for the enjoyment of learning about themselves, you find someone who's A, more self-aware, but also be better. So you get this weird amalgamation that a lot of people don't see that they're in, in which 
you have the known, those who we recognize as being the best, and then the unknown of making yourself better and competing against yourself. And those are the people I find get the most enjoyment out of things, but they also just get the most out of things. And this is that idea of the infinite possibility, but the finite understanding. And the finite understanding we're usually left with is, oh, someone's better than me. So what's the point? Instead of, maybe I'll get better. And maybe I'll have measurable results. But we kind of grew up in a period of time even, I mean, I'm talking people even in their 70s, 80s, 90s nowadays still kind of grew up in a period of time of the reference of time where things happen quickly. When the reality is things happen very slowly because we're just using a measured reference of known time. Yes, you're going to have the idiot savant. You're going to have the the gifted and the talented and the just the the just the amazing individuals that get born out of just pure genetics. That doesn't really mean it has anything to do with you. And this is the world we live in now where the internet has become this monstrosity of you can measure yourself against someone else. Compared to the original world of humanity in which the individual measured themselves against themselves, unless they were in competition for the reason of being in competition, the child could go out and find new things every day. New types of grass or plants or animals. They could make new discoveries in the fields of all sorts of different things new ways to build things, new ways to mine things, new ways to bake things or cook things. There's always these new ways to do things. And now we've kind of run out of those because the collective has gotten better. We created this monstrosity known as the internet. We were able to share information before it would take forever to share a new process for doing would maybe have to travel from uh, one tribe to another tribe. And that might have to be due to barter of a tradesperson who did travel tribe to tribe as a salesperson, you know, and then essentially bartering for the information because they walked into a, a place and they were like, how do you build that? That's pretty cool. Look at that structure. That thing's that's a giant house compared to the, uh, the little, you know, mini houses everybody else has been living in. That thing's massive. How'd you build it? Oh, we can't tell you that unless you I'll tell you what, I'll give you 16 furs. You tell me how you built that thing. And then they go to the, that trader goes to the next town and goes, Hey, guess what? I know, I know a new way to build things. What's it worth to you? And we find this information trade and the information trade is the trade of the known to the unknown. And you can do it with yourself. We just don't anymore because again, internet giant society. That's, I'm not, remember, no connotation here. I'm not saying these things are good or bad. I'm just saying these things are things. And the internet has become a monstrosity. It is a gigantic monster you cannot get away from. And it's, by monstrosity, I'm 
kind of going into the idea a monstrosity is not just a monster it's like a chimera like idea of just it's just a monstrosity look at it's nearly unbelievable just I, I don't understand this thing so we come to a, a, a point of what do you do how do you get out of the cycle it's not bad that we share information building methodologies you know farming technologies they make society better. New inventions and new understandings make society better as a whole. But it's really hard for someone to like do that. It's four years of college, two more to get, you know, some general understanding of a specific field, and then years of practice to come up with new research that maybe comes up with a new development nowadays there's not much more for us to find out in the fields in which we're in i'm going to harp on this in a little bit but first before we get to that point that's kind of where we're living in so we have this idea i said i was going to get into it later this is the first later of meta what is meta because that's that's a term that's being thrown around and it's been a term that's been you know we've had metaphysics we've had meta transcendentalism we've had all these metas and now we're getting into the metaverse. Meta is a prefix. We use it to put in front of other words to mean something. The meaning of meta, which is a derivative of met, is more comprehensive or transcending to become better than the previous. So we must be very careful who gets to use meta. Meta also, or met also, is a prefix to mean a a study thereof or a a a progression to progress something. So you have people calling this new stuff that we're looking at nowadays the metaverse. Well, that would be a progression of the verse. I'd like you to look a little bit deeper into that because I might get into it another time, but I just want to look at meta right now. So we have to look at meta as the progression of more comprehensive, transcending the previous. You have things like metaphysics. doesn't mean they're right. They might not be known yet. They might not be generally recognized, but they are new possibilities. And so we can have a meta of our own selves. We can have a, a... a transcending and more comprehensive understanding of our, our, our psychosis or our, our being. We can have metaconsciousness. That would be a possibility is to have a, a more comprehensive consciousness. Maybe it is possible for humans to have telepathy, to have kinetic understanding of something else. Maybe it is possible for us to have what's considered transcendental experiences, out-of-body experiences. Maybe it is possible for us to have telepathy and um, or telepathic abilities, such as the kinetic versions, which would mean we could move things, telekinesis. To have any possibility of that, we need to have ways of thinking that are better known or just more readily used. So... Some of the ways of thinking I'd like to make you aware of are things like retroduction. And retroduction can be 
I consider retroduction slightly different because I take it from the Greek methodologies, um, which comes from first principles thinking, which I'm about to get into in a second. But retroduction is sort of kind of in combination with what's known as abductive reasoning, um, which is logic inference. It's logic that this is happening. But abductive reasoning is a methodology based on an individual whose name I unfortunately forget. But if you just look up abductive reasoning, that individual come, will come up. They created it, uh, I believe, in the early 1900s. Of a, It's a methodology of what's known as abductive reasoning or logic inference. Greek retroduction follows that to some extent. But I use Greek retroduction because it's a little bit more broader and easier for me to use. Greek retroduction essentially is infinite amount of possibilities. We've already, I've already said that, you know, infinite amount of possibilities, finite understanding. That's Greek retroduction. So I have infinitely possible things. But I have logic and reason. So I can whittle down the possibilities and I can get rid of the, the fringe stuff and come down and get it, get into a nice narrow field of what's actually possible. Okay, this is possible. Now what's probable? Okay, this is actually, these are the probable things of these possibilities. And then I have a, a good base to work from. That's Greek retroduction in a, a very quick understanding. Then we have first principles thinking. And first principles thinking is something a lot of very intelligent people use. Measurably intelligent. Objectively measurably intelligent, not just subjective. But even subjectively, a lot of people who use first principles thinking. People are like, oh, that's person smart. First principles thinking is trying to find an axiom and then work from there. Or, or axioms, I should say. And an axiom is a, a true statement. It's something that's known, right? It's a known true statement. So you you typically have an idea or a hypothesis and then you ask questions to find the axioms and the axioms are the true statements that can be made. And then you can find principles from those axioms, techniques, concepts, principles. That's a methodology of first principles thinking. We also have logic and reason. Logic and re reason is statement and argument and logic and reason can be applied. It's more of a technique way of thinking. Remember technique, concepts, principles, logic and reasons. I guess they'd be conceptual idea. It's to have a statement and then make an argument that backs up that statement. This is generally how we look at hypotheses. I have a hypothesis, I have a guess, scientific method. I make a statement, then I back up the with arguments, with testing, and then maybe that statement is true, maybe it's false, I don't know. We also have what's known as morals and ethics. And morals and ethics are... I don't know if I'd call them conceptual, I guess supposedly they'd be conceptual, but... It's the ways of thinking when it comes to morals and ethics is we, we have a known right and wrong, which is morals. Morals are just an agreed upon set of what's right and wrong. And then ethics is the group of morals is the way to think about that. So we have all these different ways of thinking. Retroduction, first principles thinking, the use of logic and reason, morals and ethics. What do we do with them? Well, we question. It's necessary to always be questioning. That is curiosity. Curiosity is the art of questioning. To come up with new understandings. To have adventures. So, when we look at mental health and self-awareness as an adventure, we get reason from it. 
So remember, we have logic and we have reason, right? Logic is the statement. Well, we can just make a simple statement of you should learn more about yourself, self-awareness. The argument is that you might get some dopamine out of it. That would be a, a logic reason gate for why to live. Remember, I hate asking why questions, but why to live? That mental game I just played is first principles thinking. I found an axiom, a true statement. My body wants dopamine. How do I get dopamine? That's first principles. And the retroduction would probably have come before all of that. And then I would apply morals and ethics to it at some point, get rights and wrongs. Obviously don't do something that's going to hurt others. That's wrong. So it shouldn't be one of the conclusions. It could be a possibility, just not a conclusion. So when we look at meta, the more comprehensive understanding of things, and we look at the known and unknown, we can maybe find a world where it's possible for us to make new discoveries instead of being stuck in the, the Instagram world, the, the Facebook world, the someone did it better than me because they had more money or they had a, a better opportunity. If we were left in that world, we'd go nowhere because curiosity would die. Adventure wouldn't exist. We'd be left in a world where a select chosen few showed off to everyone else to keep them happy. We'd be in the very ending 10 years of the Roman Empire. We would be stuck in the... Well, we'd be stuck right around the Battle of Thermopylae with the Greek Empire and the Persian invasion. Um, we'd be stuck at the end of the Ottoman Empire with the use of um, opium to control the masses. And the then we'd also be stuck at the beginning of the takeover of the Ottoman Empire through the inclusion of the silver trade to back the opium wars. We'd be stuck there. Um, we'd get all these periods of time where we just got stuck. There'd never be a renaissance. In fact, we'd have what's known as the Dark Ages all the time. And the Dark Ages are dark because no one wrote about them because nobody wanted to. There was nothing to write about. Shit just sucked. And we've had periods of time like that through all of history. But humanity somehow claws its way out of it. Somehow. We don't really understand completely how. But there's just this weird motivating factor I call curiosity that makes us seek out more wisdom to get more knowledge or to change a piece of knowledge so that we can be wiser. It's just this never-ending curiosity. But that's at the macrocosm. At the microcosm, at the, in the human system of just my own consciousness, that can be used. In your own consciousness, that could be used. What are you curious about? Do you feed your curiosity? Do you enjoy reading certain literary subjects? Do you 
enjoy doing research about things. Is there a topic of discussion that piques your interest and you want to know more about? Do you actually go and learn more about it? Are there pieces about your psyche you haven't delved into because you don't necessarily know where to find information about them? Is it possible that there's things you enjoy you know nothing about right now? I've been through all of those experiences. And I know a lot of people who never got the chance to learn those things. Because oddly enough, most creatures have the ability to learn. Mice learn very well. When you put a piece of cheese in the maze, they learn the most opportune route to get to that cheese. That cheese is dopamine. It's their reward. They get dopamine from eating the cheese because the cheese means survival. So it's known that humans survive. In fact, we survive so well, we're kind of kind of like a virus. You just replicate and replicate and replicate and we take things over and we make the best of it. But there's a whole world of unknown. So it's about time we start looking at it because there's many more discoveries to make microcosmically in the self-awareness and mental health space and then also macrocosmically in the everything else. There are so many stories of correlation that we never look at because we agree on evolution. And it's, it's, it's a pretty good argument. But where did monkeys come from? Okay, evolution. Well, we constantly find new evidence that we were wrong about everything we know. And that's the greatest thing that can keep happening because that means the continuation of a species because this species is really only good at one thing. War. And we war over resources. And the greatest resource known to humanity is information. It's what keeps us alive. We are a, a being that requires technology to exist. Without clothing, we wouldn't be able to have the societies we have. Not just because it's agreed upon that you shouldn't go outside naked. No. It's agreed upon that if I go out in the cold without a fucking coat on, I'm probably going to freeze to death eventually if I don't have either that coat or a, a, a domicile to go into to stay warm, a shelter of some sort, or even a way to you know create a fire so that I can boil water because I need water to survive. If I just eat snow, I'm going to eventually become hypothermic and die. So we require technology. We also live in an electric universe. And we're learning now more things about how cells work and how organisms work and all these other things that follow along this idea of an electric universe. And in this electric universe, the correlation of potentiality is one of the things we don't understand. In fact, we just very nearly missed everything we've ever learned about magnetism. We almost nearly threw it all out and never continued anywhere with it. But the fact is without magnetism, you can't listen to this podcast. Magnets allow us to record audio. 
They allowed us to record our voices, record pictures, record magnets, created technology. Without an understanding of how magnets work or how to create magnets, we wouldn't be where we are today. Just wouldn't exist. TVs wouldn't exist. None of this stuff would exist. We also only went so far with it. So much so that we had an individual known as Boscovich who wrote uh, The Theory of Natural Philosophy, which is the number one book in which Nikola Tesla based most all of his findings on was reading Boscovich's book and making all these amazing discoveries. And then we threw it all out and we hit it. Because that's what we do. We wage war. And the greatest war we wage is the war on the unknown. It's the war of information. Because if I'm going to fight a war, I need to control information. Because it is the resource. It is the resource all war is fought over. Is Once you truly get an understanding of martialism, you understand all wars are not fought simply for physical resources. They're fought over information because information is the greatest resource known to humanity. I can fight war all day over land. I don't know how to use it to create crops, to feed the people. I don't have an army. So it's the knowledge of how to create those, how to plant those crops, how to, how to raise a civilization. If I don't know how to make a fire, I wage war to figure it out because if I don't, I'm going to die. That is the war that's happened since day one as a war of information and war can be fought in many different ways. And we don't think about it that way because it's unknown to most people. It's even unknown that we're at war. Most, it's not generally recognized that we are constantly in a state of warfare. It's what humanity does. We are a warring tribe, right? A tribe, tribes of warriors in some ways. And most recently I, I spoke to an individual who I kind of had to make a reference in the fact that she was a frontline warrior, even though she didn't know it because the war is always a war of information. And if you are someone on the front lines, giving out important information or questioning narrative and agenda initiation, as I talked about in last episode, you're thus a frontline warrior. And this doesn't mean you're trying to do harm to some people, although others might take it that way. It's simply the fact that you're trying to be an adventurer of the unknown. Which is why I love D&D. Because D&D allows you to experience that. To be an adventurer, to be a warrior, a mage, or a wizard, or a thief, or all of these different characters on an adventure, seeking out new knowledge and experience. That's why D&D is great. That's why it's tanded, it's, it stood the test of time for D&D to be that way. Because in the world of known and unknown, those who know have power. Those who don't know are seeking it. 
Because that's the curiosity, the want for information. So I find when you take that back to the microcosm, we talk about mental health and self-awareness, you can use the understanding that you're at war. And some people are deeply at war with themselves. Some so much that there is a clinical diagnosis. And remember, I don't work in that world. I don't work in the world of major depressive disorder. Is that something to discuss with your doctor? It's clinical diagnosis, psychiatry and psychology, and there's all of these things. I'm a martialist. I'm used to dealing with the mind because all war is fought in the mind, but I understand that the mind is the translation point between the physical and the other. It's very possible for me to wage war on myself because I don't have the information I need. Thus, I must seek it. And sometimes that looks like, get the fuck out of bed, Phil. You gotta go do something. You gotta go do the laundry. You gotta clean the dishes. You gotta vacuum. You have to clean up the domicile to make things seem a little better. You gotta go to bed. You can't stay up all night. You got responsibilities. Sometimes I'm at war with myself. And I think sometimes you're at war with yourself. You just don't take it that way. Because I'm in a constant state of war. I know that. That's my understanding. That's my known. My recognized idea is that we're always in a constant state of war. Might be a peaceful war, but it's a war. And to be at war makes you aware of many different things. But you also get to do some fun things with it. You can have thought experiments with retroduction, first principles thinking, logic, reason, morals, ethics. You can think about being meta, being more comprehensive or transcending. You can always be questioning. Because during war, if you're not questioning, you're not winning. Some of the greatest generals in the history of warfare are those who question their actions based on the actions of themselves, not their enemy. They question their own action. It's not that they didn't take it though. They don't, they don't get stuck in the loop of, is this the right thing to do? They project the idea of the logic and reason gate of, this is a statement and an argument. Is it correct to take this bridge? Arguments, yes and no. Find, use first principle thinking. Find the axiom, the true statement. Yes, because it controls the supply lines, and that's more important than this or that, the other thing. And then they, they use their retroduction of narrowing down the field of, oh, there's so many possibilities that could happen. I could flank, not flank. You know. But that's in a physical kinetic war, usually. All of that starts first as a simulation of the mind. Thus, all warfare is an information war. So if you control the narrative, the information, you control the flow of the warfare. You can make it as slow or as fast as you want. You can make it as deadly or not as deadly as you want. Do whatever you want with it. And that's why I discuss known versus unknown. And this episode is all about the unknown. Because it's not a crime not to know something. 
This is the difference between ignorance and, and willful ignorance. If you're ignorant of something, that's fine. It's not your fault. But to be made aware and then to remain ignorant, that is your fault. That's kind of a crime. That's those who do nothing in the face of diversity. When we get into the world of unknown, we feed our curiosity. We have adventures. We give ourselves maybe a little bit of reason. An argument to keep existing or to keep doing. So I challenge your understanding of known and unknown. What is it that you know? What is it that you don't know but want to or need to? Because you get what you need, not exactly what you want. What are the unknown things to you? What are the possibilities? Have you ever explored them in just a thought process of like, screw it, I'm just going to like make some shit up in my head and be creative about it. If we look at, if I just use one of my own personal examples, if we look at the unknown of the other, the, the, the realm of religions and philosophy and theosophy and all of these possibilities of the origination of humanity, where we came from, who we are, why we're here, what came or who we came from. Are we made in the image of God? What is a God or gods? We can go through the thought experiment of using retroduction to use all of the possibilities out there, which are a lot, but look at the commonalities using first principle thinkings, find the axioms, the true statements. We believe we came from something. Even if you're agnostic, you might believe in evolution and thus there was a process well, the logic and the reason there could be that when we look at old texts and we look at things from antiquity, from the past, it's possible we got the translations wrong and we take things maybe a little too literally because we think people wrote literally for some reason, which in fact, most people write creatively because writing is a creative endeavor and things like SOPs standard operating procedures, which is something I used to write, wasn't really the norm. <laughs> we didn't really write in antiquity using SOPs. SOPs are, write it so a baby can do it, and it better be fully logical and reasoned and be able to take it step by step. We didn't really write that way. Look at Shakespeare, fully creative, invented his own words. So if we take kind of that stance, it's plausible that all the gods existed, but they weren't of this world. And thus they could have been aliens. And there could have been some sort of galactic fight we didn't even know about at the time because we're some harvestable something or essentially like livestock to them. And they fought over it. And one group chose one being and another group chose another set of beings. And that was our representation of gods. And thus we have all these different pantheons because there were all these different beings of representation or there was a pantheon of beings and our cultural recognition of them just differed because all the gods seem to have some commonalities when we talk about the old pantheons of gods. Or if we look at the Hebrew text, um, specifically uh, the, I'm going to get this wrong and I apologize ahead of time, which is pretty common when I talk about these things. Um, It'll come to me. Not the 
Jethro Sephiroth, the Talmud. There we go. We have this idea of what we commonly refer to as the Elohim or Anunnaki, those types of things. And I know this is getting into all that like weird, you know, conspiracy theory stuff. But what we could derive from that is that the choice of the Elohim to follow was a choice of a powerful being that was not the first in line. In fact, the Talmud, I believe, references that it was the third most powerful being was the choice to follow for the Elohim. And thus, it could have been possible that there were these supreme, amazing beings that we had never seen before because they're fucking aliens from an advanced civilization that can travel through the stars, come down to our planet, say, hey, what's up? What are you people? We're going to fiddle with your DNA and genetics because we get some sort of harvested energy from you. Who knows? I don't know. I'm just making shit up. But it's all possible. It's all plausible. If you may, if you take the thought experiment to that degree, but we come back to known and unknown. It's unknown. I don't know if that's the truth. It's possible that all pantheons of gods were representations of extraterrestrial beings, not of this planet. And it's possible that there was a whole representation of the human, what would be known as humanity before humanity of a different genetical line that was here to experiment on the beings of this world and invented humanity. Who knows? The Atlanteans or the Luminarians could have been an advanced culture that was here before us that was from a collection of other beings that were doing experiments here and accidentally created what we know now today as humans. Who knows? We don't know because we don't look. We don't look at the unknown. We don't want to. Or I should say some people don't want us to. Because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable not to know something. And again, that leaves us stuck. So what I can derive from history is when we talk about the known and unknown, specifically in the world of mental health and self-awareness, it's a really good thing not to know. It's a really bad thing not to try to find out. And remember, I don't usually like to add connotation to things, but in this particular instance, it's great not to know something. Oh, it's so good. So amazing. To not know something means I can make a discovery. I can have an adventure. I could be that child for the first time seeing a new bird, a new tree, eating a new fruit, all of these new experiences. It's possible to do that again if we agree that we must always question. And it's great not to know because it allows us to do that question. It allows for curiosity. So I bring back what I refer to as the triality here now, because it's always been a duality. Remember, nothing's ever dual. Everything's always try. Same side, two sides of one coin, but there must be a coin. So the triality here is, I always started with the duality of knowledge and wisdom. But the truth is, those are pieces of curiosity. Curiosity is the coin. 
And it's one of the greatest currencies ever developed because it is the currency of information. To spend curiosity is to attain more information. And thus I attain new knowledge and new wisdom. Knowledge is knowing the answer to a question. Wisdom is knowing where to look for it. Curiosity is the currency thereof. It's, it is the coin of, of knowledge and wisdom. And I had debated calling this episode curiosity, but I didn't think it did enough justice because it's really about the unknown. And this idea of constantly questioning and going forward with that idea. And then, yes, things can be meta. But we need to understand that meta is the more comprehensive the transcending to be better. So if we're going to be meta anything, we need to be meta aware. You need to be better aware or progressing in our awareness of ourselves and our mental health. And to do so, we must be questioning. We must be curious because the more we don't know, the better but not trying to find out that's, that's, that's the problem. That's, that's, and that's where the monstrosity of the internet and things like Instagram and these people taking pictures with, Oh, check out this jet. I just flew on, but it's really just them paying somebody to take a picture with their jet to seem like they're cool because they have a shitty life and they just have to make themselves look better to others to feel better about themselves. And we did that to them because we didn't give them the opportunity to make new discoveries, to have reasons for living. Instead, we created this world that we currently are living in due to gatekeepers and the information war or the war thereof of information. All warfare is a war of information that the only way to give someone self-worth is to make them have to feel better than someone else by being somehow better in their measurement structure. And that's fucking bullshit. And I'm here to tell you that you should be in a war with yourself, seeking new information about yourself, seeking new information about your mental health structures, how to live a better life for you. Cause it's different for everybody. I know some people just like to play video games eat some sushi now and then or eat their favorite meal now and then. And that's just their thing. It just makes them happy and they just go through life. And that's what it's about. They don't need a ton of money. They just need enough to do that. And that's awesome that they have that much self-awareness and that much mental capability to know the curiosity lies in the experience of those things. And thus they do what they need to do to experience those things and have those adventures. Because I've also met people that have millions of dollars and they're fucking miserable because they're stuck in this revolving idea of, I just, I have to make more money to seem more important because that's all I have. And we did that. Society did that to them. It's their fault they got stuck there. I always put the blame on the individual. But the reason that was a possibility was because society made it a possibility due to a warfare of information, due to a war on curiosity, that we shouldn't look at the unknown. We shouldn't, we shouldn't question. We should follow. 
And I'm here to tell you that that that's over. That doesn't exist anymore. Specifically in the world of self-awareness and mental health. It's, it's no longer a thing. That's why I define depression as being uniquely yours. It's your way of looking at the world, your way of looking at the universe, your understanding. It's your curiosity. Your unknown or how you go about seeking it out, understanding it. That's, that's where we're at. So I challenge you. Hardcore. I totally challenge you. What's the unknown you're going to go seek out? What curiosity are you going to go jump into? It might lead to nothing. It might lead to something great. Who knows? What are you going to go try? What are you going to go do? You're going to go start your own business, start your own podcast, pick up a new hobby, try a new type of food. The possibilities are, they're infinite. They're endless. The understanding is finite. It's all knowledge and wisdom, but that's all curiosity. So I challenge you to go be curious, find new things to be curious about, find new unknowns. That was the whole thing Star Trek was based on. New unknowns, new fantastical ideas, all of sci-fi, all of all of these genres you can look at. The idea of creative writing, even persuasive writing. The idea of creativity is based on curiosity. So go be curious. Find something to be curious about. And maybe tell me about it. Head over to the taminghindrances.com, hit up the contact button, send me something. If you want to uh, hit up the review button, I will read out cool reviews on the podcast. I don't get any, but I will read them out if you send me one. Um, or if you're curious about something new, maybe check out the archive on taminghindrances.com where I just put all sorts of stuff on there, book recommendations, things I talked about on the podcast or things I found interesting, people I found interesting. Just I just generally kind of just throw stuff up there at, almost randomly in some cases. Just, oh, this sounds cool. Put that up there. But Go be curious. If it's not in this podcast or on taminghindrances.com, anywhere, just, just be curious. Because we're at war. The war is for information. And the more you have, the better off you'll be. Specifically, when it's a war with yourself, about having more information on what you know about yourself compared to what you don't know. Because the more you know, the less you really know, and that's a reason to keep living. Take care. I'll see you on the next one. Thanks for listening. Come check us out at taminghindrances.com for show notes, links, resources, and more. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or your preferred platform. If you leave us a spiffy review, we might just mention it on the show. But go be awesome. And just remember to breathe.